Hey, welcome to the Street Shots podcast. We're the Switch to Manual guys, and I'm Antonio. And I'm Tom. Hello, Tom. How are you doing? I'm doing good. How you's doing? Again with the Brooklyn accent. <laughs> I can't stop it. You'll, you'll get it I right love Bro- I love Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> we have with us today photojournalist Ron Haviv is uh, joining us from, I think, uh, Los Angeles. Tom, since you know Ron, why don't you uh, why don't you do the intro? Okay, well, first of all, welcome, Ron. It's so great to have you here. Thanks. Great to be here. For our listeners who are new to photography and just discovering uh, Ron's work for the first time, I just want to highlight some aspects of his career. Ron Haviv is an Emmy-nominated, award-winning photojournalist and co-founder of the photo agency Seven, dedicated to documenting conflict and raising awareness about human rights issues around the globe. In the last three decades, Ron Haviv has covered more than 25 conflicts and worked in over 100 countries. He has published three critically acclaimed collections of photography, and his work has been featured in numerous museums and galleries, including the Louvre, the United Nations, and the Council on Foreign Relations. Haviv has produced an unflinching record of the injustices of war, and his photography has had singular impact. His work in the Balkans, which spanned over a decade of conflict, was used as evidence to indict and convict war criminals at the International Tribunal in The Hague. Ron's also produced some beautiful photography books. One, Blood and Honey, a Balkan War Journal, was called one of the best nonfiction books of the year by the Los Angeles Times. And Ron, one of the things we're going to be eager to hear about is your general connection to the human rights world. So I just want to acknowledge that you've helped create a multi-platform project for Doctors Without Borders in the Congo, and you've worked with UNICEF. I think I, I caught the show at the United Nations. I was connected to, to that work. So again, welcome, Ron, and thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thank you. So, Ron, as our, our, our listeners cover a wide range uh, from amateurs to professionals, and they all share that passion for photography. So we thought it might be good if you could start telling us a little bit about, the, uh, about your discovery of photography and the, sort of the arc of your career up until the founding of uh, your agency, Seven. Well, okay. That, that traverses a, a large amount of time, but uh, I'll kind of bring you back to the beginning where I was a student at NYU studying to be a journalist, to be a writer, and I had real no interest in photography. And then uh, one day my uncle, who was a serious hobby photographer, gave me a camera for uh, a present. And one of the uh, jobs that I had to work uh, to pay off my university happened to actually be working for a very famous uh, fashion photographer. And kind of getting hit on those two different points uh, with photography, I started to become more interested in, in images. And then to be honest with you, to this day, I can't really remember at what point or why I actually said, oh, I'd rather tell stories with images. But um, the decision was made, and I started to teach myself photography. I took a basic uh, introduction to photography class at uh, NYU, and then quickly graduated and started uh, working uh, working in New York and um, starting to learn a little bit about the wonderful world of photojournalism, the community, uh, the people around me were incredibly helpful and very inspiring uh, to kind of understand what was going on, how to survive as a photographer, how to survive as a business person, how to get work, and and what to do. And I started to to work on the streets in New York. I was the 
youngest photographer working working in New York. I had started off as an intern in a small newspaper, mopping the floors and mm-hmm. mixing mixing chemicals and and doing all sorts of things that you would do as an intern and until that one day when I was given my uh, first assignment because nobody else happened to be around and wound up crawling around the floor of the mayor's office in New York and next huh. day got my first public first picture published which was super exciting and then I started to get more and more uh, assignments um, unfortunately I wasn't getting paid so I also was at that time I was a bike messenger and I was uh, a good humor ice cream truck salesman and doing whatever I could to kind of survive. And one day I was uh, covering the gay pride parade and I met, um, or actually I saw this photographer who looked like he'd walked off of a movie set about photographers. Good looking guy, long blonde hair, the requisite uh, photojournalism scarf, lots of press credentials. And I went up and introduced myself and uh, we were talking and I said his name was Chris Morris. He had just come back from the Philippines where he was working for Newsweek, and I was just starting to think about photography as something beyond New York. It sort of still hadn't really kind of impacted me on all the different things you could do as a photographer. But I was really intrigued, and, and I asked Chris where he was going next, and Chris said, oh, I'm, I'm going to Panama next. And I said, wow, that, that's amazing. I'm, I'm also going to Panama. At the time, I had no idea what was happening in Panama, where Panama was, but I figured if this guy was going to Panama, that was the place to go as a photojournalist. Now, again, this is a long time ago, more than 25 years ago, so I couldn't take out my iPhone and quickly figure out what was going on in Panama. So I had to go and research it and figure it out and basically found out the story was there was a dictator that was uh, in charge of Panama that was deciding to hold elections to tell the world that he wasn't actually a dictator but loved by his people. Panama was an important story because of the canal and, of course, also because the Americans had a huge military base there and their relationship with Noriega was starting to fall apart. So I went to the New York Post, who I had started also freelancing for at that point, and asked um, if they'd send me. And they actually loved Noriega because Noriega had really bad skin, so they nicknamed hmm. him Pineapple Face. <laughs> and then he would also do crazy things, so he would often be on the front page of the paper. And the paper said, sure, here's, you can go. So all of a sudden I had my first assignment. The um, Just about a week or so before I was about to uh, get my ticket and go, uh, the New York Post uh, fired their managing editor, and um, I lost the assignment. And, uh-huh. and I'm sort of wandering uh, on my way home, and, well, I have my memory of the story, and I have Chris's, so I'll, I'll kind of be fair and give you Chris's. Chris's said, uh, he said he remembers me uh, running into me on the street because we live close by to each other, and I was crying hysterically and was really upset and and telling him how I couldn't go and how I was looking forward to going. And Chris said, look, you know what? I'm on assignment for Time Magazine, and um, the airline has a buy one, get one free ticket, so I have an extra ticket that you're welcome to have and an extra bed in my room and an extra seat in my car. Wow. So I was like, okay. I'll, I said, I don't think it probably <laughs> took me more than 30 seconds to say, uh, thank you, I'll take that. And off Chris and I went to, went to Panama, and um, the election happened. Noriega lost the election. Uh, he uh, nullified the results, and the next day, the would-be victors came out onto the street to to basically rally the citizens to throw overthrow Noriega. Hmm. There was um, a lot of violence going on, and and basically, what wound up happening was that uh, Chris and I got separated, and I wound up alone with um, the candidates as they were confronted by by a paramilitary mob uh, known as the Dignity Battalion, and. 
it was my first experience of violence. There was uh, shooting and, and people being beaten up. And the vice president-elect uh, stumbled out of his car after his bodyguard was killed, lying on top of him, trying to protect him, covered in blood, stabbed in the arm. And a paramilitary said to me, excuse me, in Spanish, as I was photographing the vice president, stepped around me and proceeded to beat the vice president up with an iron pipe. And he fought back, and I was able to take uh, some photographs of that. And those photographs wound up on the cover of uh, Time, uh, U.S. News, and Newsweek, all, all in the same week, as well as uh, hundreds of newspapers uh, around the world. And that was kind of my introduction to real international uh, photojournalism. Six months later, when the United States invaded Panama, the president when speaking to the nation about the invasion, spoke about the photographs as one of the reasons why the invasion was taking place. And it was at that point where I really understood the power of photography, the power of journalism, what we could do. Now, I didn't believe that the photograph itself was the reason why the invasion was taking place, but understanding that my work was playing a role in that process, in the communication, in the education, was incredibly exciting to me and and that's why i've been doing this for the last 26 years well wow, fascinating ron and that uh anticipates some of the questions that we wanted to run by you but before we ask you some more sort of philosophical things about photojournalism i i i think uh given the folks who are listening to the podcast um people would be really interested to hear just on a practical level you know when you're going to a shoot what kind of gear, you know, what's your go-to camera and uh, what do you feel is essential? What do you tend to have with you, um, just generally speaking? Well, in terms of cameras, I've been shooting with Canon uh, for the last 25 years from transition from, from analog to digital. And so now I'm using a variety of Mark, uh, 5D Mark IIs, uh, the 1DX camera, and also shooting as well with, with the iPhone. And it really, it's sort of, the gear is kind of appropriate to whatever the situation is. There are times when I've shot with larger format cameras. But for the most part, uh, for daily reportage, I'm, I'm combining using Canon gear with, with an iPhone. I noticed the, on the picture in, um, was it Libya that you shot on the iPhone going up the stairs with the guy with the uh, AK-47? Yeah. What was the choice behind that like why would you, why did you shoot an iphone shot in that situation well actually if you if there's a piece that american photo put together from from that whole event and you'll see actually that i was shooting stills with a 5d video with a 5d and shooting with the iphone so there was no choice there was i was shooting multiple multiple things as i was trying to explore the different tools uh that i had to to build the story and so um, there were times when shooting square black and white made sense. There were times when shooting video with audio made sense. And there were times when it was important to shoot, you know, traditional 35 uh, frame uh, color. Hmm. Cool. Awesome. So, Ron, you know, in your comments about Panama and the sort of the real start of your career, you were talking about the the power of photography and the power of images. And. Um, you know, we really, that was one of the things we wanted to explore with you. And I mean, it's clear, you know, with your, the emphasis of your work has so much to do with human rights. And it, it, you know, it's, it's my sense that you have positioned yourself sort of squarely in, in, in the struggle 
for human rights and and I, I would just love to hear more of your thoughts in terms of, you know, the work that you're doing, the, the power of photography. And, you know, you kind of alluded to, to when you started, you couldn't just whip out your iPhone and find out the, what's going on regarding a political situation. So I'm thinking, I'm wondering if the power of photography might have magnified somewhat exponentially now that we live in such a digital age and so much information and so many images are at people's fingertips. What, what's your sense of, of your role in that in the struggle for human rights and specifically the power of photography? Well, I think the role remains the same. The idea is to raise awareness about what's going on, even though it's a cliche, the idea of giving a voice, the voiceless still, still holds true even to this day. I think that we have the ability through the new tools, whether iPhone, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook as distribution methods, and the iPhone as a, as a camera enables us to, to hopefully reach a larger audience. But it's a double-edged sword. At the same time, while we have the ability to reach a larger audience, the audience is also seeing a great deal more of, of photography. And so the challenge is how do you rise above the essentially the noise of the roughly billions of images that are people's cats and food and, and things like that and get them to see the imagery that, uh, that you want them to see. And this is a challenge that uh, is for every photographer. It's a challenge that we uh, at Seven, my, my agency, and myself personally uh, face every day. But this being said, this is a very exciting time, I think, to be a photographer because when you are able to break through and get your work out there, you you can reach more people than, than ever before. That's encouraging. And Ron, in terms of getting your images out and, and rising above the noise, what's, what's your sense? I mean, how does that happen in terms of, I mean, we have shows, there's photo books, um, and I, I'm not just throwing out shows as a, a small matter. I mean, I remember your images in the Brooklyn Museum exhibit on war photography and how powerful that was to see images gathered having to do with, with conflict situations. But, you know, so, I mean, in terms of rising above the noise and getting important, powerful images out into the world, what are some of the, the main ways you do that? Well, I think it's a combination between the visual voice of the photographer and the distribution platform and understanding the audience. I think first and foremost that I am a true believer in the visual voice of the photographer being one of the strongest mechanisms to rising above the noise. And each photographer, uh, if they're doing things correctly, are seeing in a very specific and, and different way. And that enables their work already to kind of rise above it. And then you have to find the right distribution way to do it. And certain projects should be multi-platform where you'll experience them in multiple forms, meaning you'll have a piece that'll be through Instagram and then on your website, and then there might be a book, and there could be a gallery or a museum show, or maybe you'll do projections on the side of a building, or you'll do posters, or there are various different things. And audience, the audience will basically interact with each one in different ways. Some people will say, like, I love to look at work as a book. That's what means most to me. And other people are like, I'm very happy sort of looking at it on Flipboard, on the iPad, or somebody else says I want more time. Uh, and look at it on a website, and somebody else says, I want it with audio, somebody else wants it with, with video. One of the things that's happening is because not only has media fragmented in the way 
that people have to go to multiple sites to look at work, the way that work is presented has also been fragmented. So it's up to the photographer to decide what's right for this particular project in order to bring into the audience. So, Ron, how do you, how do you choose to present your work? You, you just talked about all these different methods, and, and I'm sure you've done a lot of them, but what's the criteria that you use to choose how you present your work? Well, this is the criteria is going to be like, how, what audience am I trying to reach? and What's the best way to reach them? So some of, the, some of the projects I'm doing will be multi-platform, which will be everything from a short film uh, to, to a slideshow, to an app, to a website, to Instagram, Twitter, etc. And others will be like, you know what, this just makes more sense on the pages of a magazine and the magazine's companion uh, website. So there, there are no set rules. It is up to the photographer to make the choice on how he or she wants to present, present the work. I think the key, the key is understanding about all of these different platforms that exist and making sure that you're prepared before you start shooting your project to be able to do it properly. You know, on your website you have the, a video of when you're in Libya and you go back and forth between showing the video and, and cutting to pictures and what what was the choice behind that? Why did you go from one to the other? Uh, that particular piece was an experimentation of seeing like what what resonated better, what was more more interesting to the audience, and, and combining the fact that shooting with an iPhone, shooting stills, and shooting video, and putting it together. And there are other things that I'm doing now that are completely all motion, and other things where I'm using more mixed media. And it's kind of again deciding on what you're trying to say, what's the best way to say it and how the audience is going to interact with it. Ron, I have a, I have a question for you. Um, in terms of post-production, when you're editing and, and working with images and getting them ready to send off, I mean, if, you know, if you're not in a life-threatening situation where time is of the essence and you're just firing them off, you know, if you have time to work with the image, what, what kinds of constraints are there, say, for if you're doing something for a, a major publication in terms of, Keeping it real, what's allowed, what's not allowed, what would be kind of like crossing the line in terms of embellishment, and you know what what kind of constraints are are out there when you're working at that level? Well, if you've been following the World Press Photo Contest for the last couple of years, this has been a huge debate about where are the limitations on post production uh, for photojournalism, and the problem is that there when you people say, oh well. Back in the day before Photoshop, people didn't do X, Y, and Z. When in reality, the history of photography has been people doing X, Y, and Z through, yeah. through, through darkroom manipulation, through the very simple thing of, of choosing when I was shooting film, I would choose specific films because I liked the way they looked. So is there a difference between choosing to shoot something with Kodachrome or Velvia, which was like a cartoonish uh, like film, then recreating that aspect in in Photoshop. So this is this is a conversation where it's a very live conversation. And I'm not sure anybody really understands where the limitations are. Several uh -huh. things, several things that have happened that that changed the conversation, or the most important thing that's happened that changes the conversation is that before, when photographers were choosing film or filters or doing black and white, serious dodge and burning, hand of God type work in the darkroom, the majority of public had really no idea of what was going on behind the scenes to produce those images, like what the different effects were. Now everybody understands what Photoshop is, and they understand that you can really change a picture from day to night, and you can change somebody 
the way that they look. And so what is happening now is that the public is much more aware of the different tools and therefore our relationship as photographers, as journalists with the public uh, needs to be held up to scrutiny in that are we actually giving a true representation of, of what we saw with the understanding that there are, are aesthetics involved. And I don't think that there's a true answer um, to this at this particular moment. So in terms of rules, in terms of, you know, like the most basic thing, like for me, it's like removing something, changing something dramatically, cropping something to change the intent. These are sort of base, base things that I won't do. But then it starts to go into a real debate about even changing things like removing something, but by making something darker that you can't see it at all, does that qualify as the same as actually taking, you know, digitally erasing it from, from the image. And uh-huh. I don't think, I don't think the community has established a, a proper answer on it. And I think that it is, it's a serious conversation and it's about our trust with the community and where, where the lines are drawn at the same time. Photography has aesthetics involved in it and aesthetics, at least for me are incredibly important. I mean, it brings that whole, up that whole idea. Like even you were talking about choosing film stocks and and dodging and burning, and even whether or not you overexpose or underexpose. I don't know. When I was shooting Kodachrome, I tended to underexpose the film a little bit because I liked that extra saturation of the colors, and it would tend to make the shadows go black. So you would automatically be losing information. So, you know, exactly. I've always thought that was a manipulation of some sort. Like you said, before Photoshop, before anything, just picking. I mean, the one picture that comes to mind is this shot of. Um, after uh, Robert Kennedy was assassinated and he's in the uh, the busboy is holding his head in the uh, kitchen. And I know that that picture was originally underexposed and the photographer had to dodge it so that you could see the face of Robert Kennedy. And I've always wondered, like, how is that any different? I mean, it's not adding and subtracting, like, you know, putting faces on people that don't belong there, but it is a total manipulation. That picture wouldn't exist unless the photographer had... Uh, been able to dodge his face. Well, I think what has to happen is that there has to be sort of an understanding between the public and the photo- and the photographers in that I will be showing you my visual interpretation of what's going on within the realm of aesthetics but to the point where the essence of what's happening here is is mm-hmm. correct. Mm-hmm. But this is my visual interpretation of what's going on and then you have to decide as the, as the audience do you trust me or not? And this is this is going to become more and more of an issue, especially in terms of journalism, where citizen journalism is coming into play, and all these other uh, options are happening. Where who is giving you the work? What does it mean? How many hands has it gone through? Is it propaganda? Is it news? And this is goes to the idea of visual literacy and something that is becoming more and more important for the public, given that we have a trillion images that are going to be produced this year, uh, of people, how do you interpret, consume, and understand the imagery? And it, you cannot be just a passive audience. You actually have to be an active audience, and you have to challenge what you're seeing to actually understand whether you can believe it or not. Sometimes that's asking a lot of the audience, though, don't you think? Yes, it should be. This is not. This is not candy. I mean, this is talking about you have a visual language. We're talking, especially in terms of, of journalism, you're talking about people's lives, you're talking about information, you're talking about p- decisions being made on the images that we're seeing in combination with obviously other things. But the audience, yes, the audience should be more active and the audience should learn how to consume imagery. And it's going to become more and more important.
In terms of, you know, images that tell stories and and what you're doing, communicating through images, I'd love to hear you talk a little about a couple favorite images of yours that have particular importance. Um, I mean, they might be some of the iconic images you've produced or perhaps something that for just more personal reasons are really important to you. But, you know, just to hear you talk about a particular image. Well, as I referenced, the, you know, the first image from, from Panama is quite important to me because it, it taught me some of the impact that photography could have and was you know, fascinating for that level that before that, the idea of photography was just about me and all of a sudden I started to realize what we could do in a different way about the people that we were photographing. Mm-hmm. And then probably a few years later, I was um, working, um, I started to cover the dissolution of Yugoslavia and by the third war, um, it was very apparent of the of the lack of power of photography and how people were really not reacting to it. But it really became that idea really crystallized uh, when I was traveling with a a paramilitary group known as the Tigers, and I was allowed to photograph them in action, and they wound up executing a number of unarmed civilians. And when those photographs were taken and published the war in Bosnia hadn't really kicked off. And so people were talking about that unless there was intervention by the West, this war was going to happen. It was going to be very brutal. And I had really thought that this work was going to sort of push it over the edge, the the conversation into galvanizing some sort of reaction. And the work completely failed and did nothing. And the war started. Several hundred thousand people were killed. Several million more became refugees and then led into several other conflicts. And and they're still feeling the ramifications of that conflict today, 20 years later, after the end of that war. So that was sort of a kind of the opposite effect of what had happened with my Panama picture of understanding the limitations of, of photography, of photojournalism. And it took me a while to kind of grasp the other lives that photography could have. And it was because of because of my work in the former Yugoslavia. I started to understand that when my work failed in this initial idea of attempting to uh, create change, it morphed into a body of evidence. It morphed into these documents to hold people responsible. And that came out of my work uh, from what became known as ethnic cleansing. And that became a very important part of the motivation that I've continued to have to this day. And so probably another image that holds true in that idea is a photograph that I took in Darfur during uh, the conflict there of a young girl and her friends about to go off uh, on possibly a you know, two-day journey to find firewood to cook food for their families living in a displacement camp. And the photograph is remarkable for me in a number of different ways, but primarily because of the way that the girl looks in the photograph, the way that she's holding herself, the way that she's dressed, uh, the light taking the photograph is taken probably six in the morning. It's very warm, warm light, and everything kind of works together. But she represents to me kind of this dignified and resilient displaced person that's suffering from war, but at the same time she's being submissive to um, the the elements around her. And this is kind of you know the amazing beauty about photography is that when these images go out there, they, they interact in the world in, in ways that perhaps like I would never intend. And so the photographs from, from the Balkans were eventually used in the war crimes tribunal to indict 
the presidents and various other people. In fact, it uh, was just used in evidence a few months ago in one of the last major trials from, from that conflict. The work from uh, Darfur became an iconic image use, being used by Amnesty and UNICEF to raise awareness about what was happening uh, in Darfur. And so it's really such an incredible privilege to have my interpretation of the world go out there and then for people to kind of interact with the work and be emotionally uh, connected to it, to be motivated to perhaps donate money, to vote in a different way, to just understand the world in, in, a, in another way as well. Yeah, it's interesting. There's the sort of the possibility for an image to lead to some sort of immediate intervention. And then there's also this dimension of it that kind of transcends time because it captures a moment in time. And so 20 years later, as you're saying, you know, these images are still relevant and still part of the ongoing struggle for justice seems to somehow redeem what could be perceived as powerlessness in, in the immediate situation, which sometimes feels to be the case when, the, you know, no matter how powerful an image is, it doesn't, uh, somehow it isn't able to thwart, you know, the forces that are gathering. You know, Ron, we know you, you were just back from um, the former Yugoslavia and there was this, you know, you had a show on these images on the 20th anniversary of that conflict. You know, I would just be interested in hearing your thoughts um, 20 years later on the, the enduring power of the images and, and just the experience of um, being there. Well, my work in the former Yugoslavia has, at this point now, moved past news imagery and turned into historical documents. And in places like uh, Bosnia and Croatia, uh, certainly uh, maybe to a lesser degree, Serbia and Kosovo, intertwined itself into popular culture, where in, in Bosnia and Croatia, the work has been used in artwork and history books and there have been comic artists that have you know, transformed the work into in comic strips and artists that have used it, incorporated it in, the, in their work. And it's sort of a very interesting uh, examination of the other lives of, of, of photography, as well as being part of the truth and reconciliation process of, of what's going on in the area. And so returning to, to Sarajevo quite recently and having an exhibition there where I met people, some for the first time, people that were in the photographs that I had taken 20 years ago, as well as hearing stories about this person, what happened to this person, someone who died, other people that are alive and living as uh, refugees in other places. It, it's just a very interesting experience. I mean, one of the things about specifically about Bosnia is that because that country hasn't moved forward, the ramifications and feelings of the war are just under the surface. So even when you drive down uh, the main boulevard in Sarajevo, there's the National Historical Museum, and on the walls of the museum are a number of my photographs, you know, 30 feet high, and they've been up there for years and years. And so that's, um, you know, this is when the photography is no longer, it's no longer my photography, it's it's. It's now owned by by the people. It's part of it's part of their their history and their and their world. And I want to ask you about you know looking at a lot of your pictures and, and reading what you wrote about your experiences in uh, the former Yugoslavia and stuff like that. And 
or are you affecting the situation that you're photographing? I mean, you've talked about getting in front of, you know, protecting a couple of prisoners from being shot and you're, you're, you're not impartial. I guess I could see based on how your work is being presented and used, you know, in the war crimes trial and whatnot. Do you have any sense of that, that you're like, people are playing to your camera or are they, are you affecting the situation? I always, I always wonder about this in terms of photojournalists. Like are people, are you actually, you're not really a fly on the wall. Um, people see you the, with the camera. Are they doing things because you have a camera? Are they not doing things because you have a camera? Well, it, it's situational. I mean, sometimes I really am a fly on the wall where people, especially in, in extreme situations, people don't really care. Care. They don't even notice that you're there. They're, they're dealing with their own survival, and, and you're just another figure, and, and that doesn't matter, although that's more of a rare situation. The idea of people acting to the camera is something that you have to, as a photographer, have to be totally conscious of at all times. And there have been lots of times where I've, I've been in a place, maybe not even f- photographing, and I see that people are doing something because I'm there. Or, or they act when the camera's up, they start doing things. And so whenever that happens, I put the camera down and I walk away or I tell them that you know, I'm not interested in them doing X, Y, and Z. I mean, there are unfortunately stories when other journalists do not do that and people do act specifically for the camera. And this is another kind of idea of where we're breaking the trust that we have uh, with with the public. But for myself, my rules are very simple. I mean, I don't ask people to do anything. If I miss the photograph, I don't ask them to do it again. I don't put people in better light to recreate a reportage scene or anything of that matter where I'm like actually directly affecting or directing, for that matter, uh, the image. That being said, I think there, you know, the public has to understand, and there's a reality that I'm a physical being and I'm taking up space, and there will be some sort of impact on the scene, whether just simply somebody, instead of walking straight, has to turn slightly to walk around me. I try to minimize that as much as possible, but I'm assuming that the audience is at least sophisticated to know that this is not a. I'm not. My work is not taken mm-hmm. taken from a surveillance camera. Right, right. I, you know, I'm looking at your stuff. I'm like saying, how are you still alive? <laughs> how did you make it through some of these situations? Like in the Yugoslavia, and they're pointing the gun at you and telling you to, you know, stop shooting. I mean, obviously you, you you're not doing that, but like, how are you still alive, man? I've to be honest. I mean, I've just been very lucky. I've made lots of stupid mistakes, and other times I've been in dangerous situations that are. They were going to happen no matter what I did. And I, I'm lucky. There are a number of my friends and, and colleagues over the course of the last 25 years that did the same thing and, and paid for it with their lives. So sometimes it's just a matter of what side of the street you're on or even a matter of inches. Ron, before we uh, wrap up, I, I would just love to hear you tell, talk a little bit about um, the agency you co-founded, Seven. Um, maybe some things that are going on now or other, the other photographers you're working with. Anything you'd like to say? I'd be happy to. I mean, Seven was formed in uh, 2001. We actually, the agency was launched on September 9th, 2001. Obviously, the world changed. Uh, two days later, and one of our founders, James Noctway, was in New York and covered the um, destruction of the World Trade Center and has probably some of the most iconic imagery uh, taken taken that day. And then pretty much since then, for the last uh, 14 years or so, we've been, as a group, out there documenting issues of, of our times, whether uh, it's social unrest, conflict-related, uh, ideas about um, child marriage or 
mining in the Congo. I mean, we, we sort of cover the gamut of things that we feel need need to have a voice. And, and the reason we we established the agency was that it was at a time when um, Corbis and uh, Getty Images, two large multinationals, were trying to control. Uh, image content because they understood the value of imagery in the new digital world, and we um, we decided that we wanted to be independent and we wanted to handle things our own way, and we formed this very small group of of, of photographers, much in the way that Magnum, a more established prestigious agency, was established uh, 50 years beforehand, and we exist to this day. And I think um, it's it's a successful model for some people. There have been a no- number of other smaller agencies that, that have followed us. And we continued uh, to work. Uh, we're, we're now 19 photographers, uh, photographers all around the world, men and women, and we are out there trying to, to tell stories and, and hopefully uh, do something with our photography. Does the name come from the amount of, you started with seven photographers? It's a yeah, very simple name, seven yeah. photographers, and seven photographers had seven different ideas of what to call the agency. So the number seven seemed to be the the most <laughs> the easiest way to go about it. <laughs> That's great. You know, Ron, um, one last thing I would like to ask is um, I, I find it fascinating that in in the beginning of your career you were uh, imagining that you would pursue writing, if I understood that correctly. And then, you know, as you were talking about the arc of your career and your body of work, it, it's really becoming clear that you're communicating, you're sort of writing through images, you're telling, you know, you're using the language of symbols. And I just wonder if you have thoughts on what you're able to express as you know, a photographer, as an artist, as a photojournalist who has devoted his life to communicating through the language of symbols, what comes to mind if, if you ask yourself what you're able to communicate through that language that um, you might not be able to if you were just, you know, writing prose? Well, while I think that obviously the written word can be incredibly impactful and very strong and often even when combined with still imagery, I think that... The still image, more so than anything else, uh, is a universal language. And that ability to, to cross lines like that, to reach a larger audience, is, is very exciting. And the idea of using the components of a photograph in order to create an emotional bond with the viewer, in order for them to feel the content or connect to the content, uh, is important to me. So I'm very conscious of using those aesthetics, of using color, using light, using composition uh, to create that emotional connection to the viewer. And I think that when and when talking about visual voice, I think that's probably my visual voice, using those elements uh, to really, really create something that people won't forget and hopefully at the very least will learn something from it, possibly be motivated uh, to act. And it's my small part of trying to, you know, to leave an imprint and, and make things a little bit better for, for the world that we all live in. Ron, what's your advice to anybody who is thinking about following in your footsteps, getting involved in photojournalism? What's, what, what would you have to say to them? There's, there's a lot to say, and I think that there's a lot of potential. And the most important thing is, I think, for a photographer to have a visual voice to un- that's singular to that person, and that this is the way that they see and this is how they tell their stories. And I think that that's the most important thing going forward. Cool. 
Just to finish up, I, I noticed that you have some uh, classes that are coming up in the main workshop. I do. I, I teach a number of workshops talking about visual voice, talking about how to survive as a independent photographer and all the benefits um, that you can learn from all the mistakes that I've made. And so the next, <laughs> the next one will be um, end of June uh, in Main Media Workshop and then followed up with a workshop in Bali and then following that with a workshop uh, in, in September in, in, the, in the Delta in Clarksdale, Mississippi. All that information will be, is available on my website. You're on uh, Twitter as well? I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, and I'm on Facebook. So it's, I'm not a hard person to yeah. find. Well, Tom? Yeah, I think uh, we're ready to wrap up, Ron. I just have to, you know, I, I would just like to close by saying, you know, I'm so deeply grateful to your amazing work. And, you know, I have been so moved and inspired by your artistry, your commitment, your voice. And, you know, I'm... I'll just gonna uh, you know reflect on all this further, but I, I just think it's so fascinating what you're saying. You know, the challenge to the viewing audience to you know for folks to become more educated, more savvy, more you know better able to discern true photojournalism and true art, and to appreciate the power of art. And it's really like you know it's it's where I think we're all being challenged to to learn a new language in order to you know, glean, uh, you know, the, the real powerful life-changing images that are out there. And so my, my hat is off to you for having produced many of those images. And I really want to say thank you for, um, you know, agreeing to be interviewed by me and Tony. So thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks for a great conversation. Yeah. Thanks, Ron. And, uh, hopefully when you get back to the city, the three of us can have a beer or something and (laughs) continue the conversation. Look forward to it. Yeah. So thanks a lot, Ron, for being on the show. And that wraps it up for this week. Uh, We need to tell you guys how to get in touch with us. So you could go to our website, which is switchtomanual.com. And uh, we'd like you to, if you have suggestions and comments, you can email at us at info at switchtomanual.com. Where else are we, Tom? We're on Facebook, right? Yeah, Facebook, Flickr. Yeah. You, we now made it so that anybody can join our Flickr group and right. you can we, share your work with us. Yeah, up until now, you couldn't. So thanks to Allison Sheridan for pointing that out to us. Now we have it available for the public to uh, join our Flickr group. So join and share pictures. We're also on Twitter. We're um, at uh, Switch, the number two, manual. So find us on uh, Twitter as well. You can send us suggestions and comments there. And if you're getting this through iTunes, please uh, post comments and uh, reviews on iTunes for us. Uh, We would really love that. And uh, you can also find us in G+. We have a community growing there. So lots of places where you can find us, right? Yeah. Yeah. We're not in the phone book anymore. Hey, who's got phone books anymore? You have to find us on the internet. So that's it. Yes? Yes. Cool. That's a wrap. That's a wrap. So uh, see everybody next week. Ciao. Adios.